The format of this meeting is two 10-minute speakers followed by our information break and then our main speaker who will speak for 20, 30 minutes, sorry. Uh, our first 10-minute speaker is Ephraim. Hi, my name is Ephraim, I'm an alcoholic. Hey Zoom, hey everyone. Uh, grateful to be here, Daniel, thank you for uh, asking me to be of service. I, I was just thinking as I was sitting in, in the front row here, like I would have lost this bet. You know, me being here on a Tuesday in a church, speaking in a room full of alcoholics. Um, but I'm glad that the, this is the way it turned out, you know, just for today, so. But it is kind of trippy. Uh, I've got a sobriety date, that's October 16th of 2011. I've got a sponsor, his name's Dave. He knows he's my sponsor. Uh, and uh, I got a home group, that's the PAX men's group, that, that meets on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, 645, 155 East 22nd. Um, I've done the steps out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I work with guys. That's the only thing I got planned, you know? Uh, and and uh, I always start my shares that way because when I first came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, that's what all these folks were doing, you know? And they had something that I wanted, which was like a sense of peace and comfort. And when I talked to them, I was, they were degenerate, you know? At least they talked like, they, they knew what they were talking about, but the same people, like they had this peace. And I was like, what'd you do? What'd you do, right? And, and uh, one of the things they did was that, that, that start, all right, let's get to it. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't show up to my first meeting uh, thinking I was an alcoholic. You know, I showed up to my first meeting, uh, this was Miami, I was sweating profusely, sweating profusely, and it wasn't because of the weather, you know, I was, I, was, I was thinking about myself, the humidity didn't help, but just thinking about myself so much in fear, right, like I was afraid because I was thinking, what if I am? What if I really am an alcoholic? You know, I had this sneaking suspicion I'd been down for the count. I, I, I tried all these different ways to manage my drinking, right? I, I, I switched from um, vodka Red Bulls to no vodka Red Bulls, right? I, I switched from uh, mixing drinks to just drinking straight. I switched from drinking vodka to rum, from rum to whiskey, counting the number of tops in my beer cans, switched from, uh, you know, beers to Francia, you know what I mean, and, and, and tried all these different things. I tried to have my um, friends keep me in track, you know what I mean, like, hey, watch me tonight, you know, make sure I don't, don't get too out of hand like last week and do something weird, you know, I tended to get uh, in fights and lose a lot, of, all of them, and uh, so uh, I had a, <laughs> so they never really helped out, you know, and, um, but like I showed up to AA, you know, with all these different attempts to control and manage my drinking. Two drink tests, that was another one. I went to a therapist and, and she's like, just try drinking two drinks. I don't know if y'all have ever tried that. It is miserable, you know, because I'm just like sitting there trying to milk a drink. Someone's talking to me. I don't really like them. I want it to be over. I'm timing my sips. I give up. I finish the drink and the two drink test is over, right? And um, ultimately, it, it kind of led, my drinking always kind of led to the same place which was this, um, they say it really well in the book, like pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. The way that I picture it is me waking up, coming to. Coming to would be a better description. Just a pit in my stomach, you know? And, and that was a combination of whatever I drank the night before. It wasn't top shelf. And just knowing that I'd done it again. You know, like I developed this pattern trying to control and manage, and then what would happen is ultimately I would hurt people. I'd say these, I'd say t 
terrible things. I'd get in fights. I'd end up crying because you didn't understand what my life was like. You know, it wasn't glamorous. I'd wake up just knowing, right, knowing what had happened because I, I became familiar with this. Just thinking I'm not cut out for this world, you know, because for me, alcohol was a breath of fresh air. You know, like my mind runs a million miles a minute. It always has. I'm egocentric, right? I'm always thinking about me, how I can get mine, what I have to do, what you think of me. I've been that way since a young pup, you know? And, um, you know, alcohol just was like, you know? And like I was a 90s baby. They tried to put me on all sorts of prescriptions, you know what I mean? And that didn't do it. That didn't do it, right? That just gave me side effects. So. Fast forward, right? So I'm from I'm from the suburbs of Chicago. So I go I go down to Miami because I think a geographical change maybe that'll break the pattern I just talked about, right? The common denominator in all these things I described: switching the drinks, trying to have accountability buddies, you know, going from Chicago, Cook County to Miami Dade. Like the common denominator across all these things is me, right? But I love alcohol, so the last thing I'm gonna consider I found for myself was alcohol, right? Um, and I loved blaming my family. Like if you like the sad boy trauma narrative was like my jam. You know what I mean? Like I that was like my go-to five minutes. That was my go-to, right? Like I knew that song, and um, you know that that I couldn't blame them anymore. You know what I mean? Like they weren't around me, and. Um, so what I was saying is, I showed up to my first meeting in, in Miami sweating profusely. You know, not knowing if I was an alcoholic, but being afraid I was down for the count. And, uh, you know, I'm grateful. I'm grateful this guy stuck his hand out. You know, he said, hey, you here for the meeting? I'm grateful that despite every part of me wanting to run out of that church, looking around thinking, what series of decisions led a kind young man like me to a place like this? You know, me holding hands at the end saying the Lord's Prayer. You know, I didn't know the Lord's Prayer, right? Like, I, you know, and, and just being like, what did I sign up for? You know? And um, still here. What a miracle. I wouldn't have bet on me. You know what I mean? I would not have bet on me. And what's also amazing is um, a, a guy who I got sober with in Miami, three months after me. He's in this room right now. We both stayed sober. I would not have bet on him either. <laughs> He's somewhere in the back. That's your shout out. Um, okay, so what happened, right? Like, um, Everyone was saying all these. I wanted to, frankly, I was scared I was going to die and die, live miserably. And all these people were doing these things in the rooms and calling me, and I wanted to fit in. So that worked for me for quite a while, actually. They had a sponsor. I got a sponsor. He said, call me every day. Yes, sir. It didn't feel like an option. Right? Like, I got sober in a group where, like, things didn't feel like an option. There wasn't a ton of negotiation. Um, and my feelings got hurt a lot, but I pushed through, you know, because I, I, I believed that these people here had something. And I, and I had come to believe that what I was doing wasn't working, right? So remove alcohol, I'm incredibly uncomfortable, though. And, like, I have this itch, so what I immediately find is, and this is about me, like, my alcoholism, I define as, I really love outside things to make my insides feel good. 
Anything that I can find outside to make my insides feel good, I will use a lot of it. All gas, no brakes. You know what I mean? Like, and it's you know, it's still to this day. But I, I now know these patterns that I have, and and so you know, I was working out three hours a day, shopping, doing all these things, right? Like, had a little girlfriend, like all these things to like continue to try to manage my insides with like outside outside deal, you know? And my sponsor, he noticed it, he just pushed me through the steps, you know? I didn't believe in a higher power, but I wanted to. He said, let's keep going. I knocked the fourth step out. I called him every day. I called guys. What I found was at one point in Alcoholics Anonymous, I stopped doing it because I was afraid to drink. And I started doing it because I was excited about the life that I could live. And that was a turning point. You know, I felt like Wait, maybe I have a chance, too, if I keep doing this, you know? And it's little by slowly. So this is what I've learned about AA. It's definitely not overnight, and it's not how I would do it. It's not. I, I'm just not, but, like, I'm not wired like this. That's why I need the steps, you know? It's the day-in, day-out minutia, calling the people, showing up to the meetings, saying hi, going to eat, calling my sponsor, being honest with my sponsor. I don't know how it's going to work. It doesn't always work immediately, but it, it, like, it just stacks up. And that's really, hard to, that's really hard to fathom when I first come in. And it's still hard to fathom sometimes today, too. I still like to feel good. You know, my first, my first response is not to immediately pray still. That's why I still show up to meetings. That's why I still have a sponsor. You know, and, and my, my relationship with, with my higher power, you know, it went from just trusting the, the, the word and experience of the group to me developing a relationship with a higher power because I started running into some experiences that folks that I knew didn't know, you know, hadn't been through before, you know. And um, here's what I, you know, my, my, my belief in my higher power is if I do the work, these spiritual things that we talk about, right, my, God's always here. It's just my ability to see what's being presented to me, you know. And the more I do, the clearer it is that I could be in line with, with, with that kind of spiritual force. It's not one thing like this path. There's all these certain... Goodbye to you too, Olga. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's a little bit about, you know, how my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and real quick, what it's like today, you know, I can show up. I can show up for my mother even when I don't want to. I can show up for work even when I don't want to. I can show up for a meeting even when I don't want to. And I can try to contribute and try to give more than I take in any given situation, you know. And I don't have to cause more damage. And um, I owe that all, all to Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you. Our second 10-minute speaker is Nicole. Hi, everybody. My name is Nicole, and I'm an alcoholic. Some, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to speak here tonight. Um, it's always an honor and a privilege to speak at an AA meeting, but I'm extremely excited and grateful to be able to speak at AG tonight. Um, so my sobriety date is July 16, 2019. I have a sponsor. Her name is Shannon. She's sitting right here in the front row. I have the privilege of sponsoring some amazing other women who are here tonight. I have a home group at 79th Street Workshop. I do a lot of service at my home group. I'm very involved there. I've been through the steps, and I do my best to live in the principles of this program on a daily basis. So how I got here. 
I started drinking when I was 12 years old. Um, and I started drinking, I started smoking cigarettes, I started experimenting with other things uh, because I was in a lot of emotional pain. And so I was in a lot of emotional pain and I didn't know what to do with my pain. And I didn't want to feel my pain and my pain turned into anger and I didn't know what to do with my anger. So I found these things that would numb my pain and my anger. And so I stuck with those things, and that's been my story until I got sober. I didn't want to feel anything. I didn't want to feel those feelings, so I shut them down and I numb them. And that's how I ended up here. I'm from San Diego, born and raised there, so I started going down to the nightclubs in Tijuana when I was 14 years old. And once that door opened to that nightlife, a party girl was born, and that was my story from then on. That was my identity. That was what who I was, that was the lifestyle I lived, that was just me. And I didn't know if I wasn't this party girl, who I was. 18, went to college, I went to a big party school in San Diego, I was introduced to my drug of choice, which I will stick to the singleness of purpose, but I have to mention that because it changed my drinking indefinitely. I became an everyday drinker at 18 years old. And I didn't even know to label myself an everyday drinker because I thought drinking every day was normal. And it wasn't until I came to the rooms and I heard other people say, you know, I was an everyday drinker and, and then it kind of clicked for me. But I didn't even think, I just thought that that was normal. I thought everybody drank every day. My 20s was completely dedicated just to my party life. Everything through that high, ent entire decade was just going out, partying, nightlife, clubs, Vegas. Like, that's just what my, my life was. That was all I cared about. Um, I didn't even start my career till I was 30. Um, and I moved to New York six and a half years ago for my career, because it was my dream since I was in sixth grade, to live in New York and work on Wall Street. And I worked really hard to make that happen. And I had that dream, and then I was throwing it away as soon as I got here. Um, you take a single party girl that doesn't have any breaks and doesn't have a no function and you put her in the middle of Manhattan and it's a disaster and that's what I was. Um, a year and a half after I moved here, I like to say that New York brought me to my knees because it did. Um, that was like the beginning of the end for me. So a year and a half after moving to New York, I found my way to the rooms. I was going out and staying out till 3, 4 in the morning, almost every single night, getting up at 7.30, going to work. Then I wasn't going to work. I was still drunk for half the day at work. You know, I was just a complete disaster, and that's what it's like when I drink. Um, so May 14, 2018, it's not my sobriety date, but it's a really important date that I always like to say because it's the first day I ever stepped foot in a 12-step room, and that day changed my life. Um, I went to a fellowship that dealt with my drug of choice because drugs were the problem, alcohol wasn't. And so I walked in and I, it was the first day I ever saw that there was a solution. First day I ever saw that there was sober people and they looked relatively happy. And so I said, all right. And so I stuck around. And uh, you know, being the fun party girl, I did all the fun things and I went to meetings and I went to fellowship and I made friends. And I went to the sober events and I didn't do any of the work. And then they said, well, you know, to be sober, you had to get rid of the alcohol too. And I said, no. And they said, yes. 
And I said, no. And, um, you know, I didn't, now looking back on it, um, I didn't think I could give up alcohol, and I didn't think I could be a sober person. So my defense mechanism is to say, I can't do it. Alcohol's not the problem, you know? Um, and now it's like I think about it and it's like, well, that's so obvious that's the thing that's a problem, but like my brain didn't operate that way then. Um, and so um, I'm really grateful that I only have a year from when I went to CA to where I found my way to AA because that's all I needed. That's how bad it was. Um, I had a very mental and emotional bottom. Um, in that year when I took the substances away, I was trying to numb that pain and I, and I was just trying to numb it with alcohol and I needed a lot of alcohol and so I was drinking like so much to try and get that numb feeling. And um, I was a blackout drinker. I was an intentional blackout drinker. I liked blacking out. I don't really understand drinking without blacking out. It's just the way I operate. And, um, and now I have that awareness because I don't question if I can drink a little bit or if I can moderate my drinking. It's like I can't and I don't want to. You know, and that awareness is key for me. Um, you know, so I, I came to AA, um, and it wasn't exactly that easy or that graceful, but I woke up on Tuesday morning of July 16, 2019, and all I can say is something way bigger than me stepped in and did for me what I couldn't do for myself because I woke up most mornings saying I never want to drink again, but that morning I woke up and I haven't picked up a drink since, and that's something way bigger than me and way more powerful than me. So I came in this time, I got to sponsor my second meeting, who was a member of the Atlantic Group. I came in, I had willingness, and I had a gift of desperation, and I came in with my hands up in an act of surrender and said, just tell me what I have to do, because I was broken, I was hurt, I was lost, I, my anxiety and depression was at levels that I didn't even know was possible. So I came in and my sponsor got me, you know, right into the middle of the program. I got three service commitments, my first commitment, was a greeter at the Tuesday night meeting and I didn't understand how standing out there with 20 other people was going to help keep me sober, but it did. And then I realized people started to know my name and I started to know people's name and it gave me that feeling that I used to get when I'd walk into the bar. Because what I was really looking for was connection. And I found that connection here. And service to me is a non-negotiable. I do a lot of service. I make my sponsees do a lot of service. It's what keeps me in the middle of the herd and it's what I can give back to AA. I, went, I started going to fellowship a lot early in sobriety, and that's where, you know, I started to know people, and people started to know me besides just my name, and I've met some of the most important people in my life through fellowship. Um, and I, I did the steps my first year, and then came year two, where it's actually living in the steps and living in the action of the steps, and that's, like, the tricky part. And I don't do that perfectly, but I really do my best to try and live in the steps. And, um, and use the tools that this program has given me. Um, and I do that on a daily basis, and it's all a daily reprieve, and I don't do it perfectly, but I give it my best shot. And I just want to say that this program and sobriety has given me, it's given me a really big life. Big doesn't necessarily mean easy, um, but my life has gotten really big, and I just make sure as my life gets bigger, my higher powers had to get bigger, and my programs had to get bigger, because if my life gets bigger and those things don't, then they're moving apart. And if they move apart, that's when I start to get into trouble. So I make sure that as things get bigger, that I have to rely on my higher power. I need this program more. Like sometimes life throws curveballs at me and that happens, life on life's terms. And I've just learned, you know, 
double down on my program. Whatever it is that I'm going through, this program has been here to give me the tools that I need to get through it. And um, so I'll just close with this. Um, alcoholism and addiction is a very serious, deadly disease. People die of it every single day. And, um, and I don't take my seat in this room for granted. And I try to hold that very close to me um, because I consider it a privilege to sit as a sober person in a seat of Alcoholics Anonymous or any 12-step program. And um, to be able to walk this life as a sober person is the greatest gift that my higher power has given me. Um, and I cling to that gift of desperation that I had the first day that I walked into this room. Um, you know, and I just want to say that if, if I can do this, like anyone can do this, and all it takes is just some willingness, listen to suggestions, and listen to the experience of, of other people that have walked this path before you and other people that have stayed sober, um, and really just find your group of people in this room um, because some of the most important people in my life who have been there to support me are sitting in this room and I wouldn't be able to stay sober without that support. Um, and so I just want to say thank you to the Atlantic Group for helping to keep me sober this past three and a half years to everybody in this room and I hope I said something that helps somebody tonight, so thank you. And our main speaker tonight is Joe. We'll get there. Hey everybody, I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic. I think it's as far as it goes up. Are we good? You may have to. Uh... Uh, can you bring it up a little more? That's perfect. God forbid it shouldn't be perfect. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. We did it. Uh, so my sobriety date is August 9th, 1989. My sponsor's name is Kevin. And my um, home group is Fast Break, which is a morning meeting on the east side. I also go to the uh, Atlantic Group uh, Step and Tradition meeting on Friday evenings. And I go to a bunch of other meetings. My sponsor encourages me to get to a lot of meetings, uh, or I should say different meetings. I go to a meeting a day still. Um, when I, I'm asked, you know, uh, what step, because people often will say, well, well I, I did the steps. We, we go over the steps constantly. In fact, each day I got something, some problem comes up in my life, and, and I've got to dig in. You know, sometimes I could just pick up the book, or I could just contemplate if I'm, you know, praying and meditating on something. It's usually a character defect, by the way. Spoiler alert, nine times out of ten, something's going on up in here where I'm going sideways. Uh, I'll start from the beginning. Also, um, th this meeting, it's like I have a, a, a dear friend of mine told me to speak from the heart. I said, well, what else am I going to do, uh, you know, today? Because I, I, um, when I first came in, there was an older gentleman named Bill. He, he was my grand sponsor, and I was talking to Dayton, who was also a fellow who was coming in the same time as me around the time uh, back then, and I was terrified of Bill. I was terrified. I was this Jewish kid from Long Island, and you know, I think he went to Danamora or something. He was a very 
white haired, bluish haired guy who looked, but he was, this, he was a nice guy, but I was terrified uh, of him. And, uh, but he was, he was really kind uh, to us, us coming in. So slight digression. I, um, I drank, uh, alcohol was, was a gift to me as a child uh, for a bunch of reasons. I had so much anxiety as a kid. Uh, my father was an Israeli Air Force pilot. My mother was a Holocaust professor. And so the world was out to get us. <laughs> we were told that on a daily basis. And uh, alcohol, when I drank, it went away. I felt, I saw more convenient. I drank like seven, eight years old is when I started, because you could drink, because no, no Jews could be alcoholics. That's what we were told. So there was always alcohol there. And I had a grandfather who everybody loved in the, in the community. It was in Israel, and he was like a guy that was like really well respected, and he was funny, and he was charismatic. He was an older guy, and, and he would sit me next to him, and he'd pour me a, a, a glass of whatever. My grandmother would be yelling at him in a different language, and he'd be yelling back, and he'd give me the drink, and I'd drink, and I thought, I want to be just like him someday. I want to be just like that man. But so it brought me joy. It, it freed me from this anxiety, constant anxiety of having to be perfect. You had to be perfect in that household. And people were coming to get us. And when I drank, <laughs> nobody was coming to get me. I felt like Mork and Mork and Mindy or whatever. I just, I was like goofy. And my childhood was like that. I grew up very fortunate. I, was, I got to play classical music. I got into sports. I did well in school. And but, so what happened was the alcohol was always there. At first it was on the, um, the weekends. I'd go to the, uh, the synagogue and you were allowed to drink there and they'd put out uh, these tables and tables of Dixie cups of wine. And so a few friends of me, we would just stand there waiting, waiting until the rabbi said the blessing and then we'd start drinking them. And then people, if you left your cups, we would drink them afterwards. And then afterwards, we'd go up to the person who was the bartender. We'd say, can I have another one? And they'd say, you're underage. And I'd say, no, it's the Shabbos. And so the, the guy would pour me one more drink. And then I would do it. And I'd run home along the tracks. And I, I was like hearing in my head, like the $6 million man. So that was the joy of alcohol. But it started to fail, or I started to fail. Things started to happen. Uh, through junior high and high school, I started to get sloppy, careless. I started to do things that were uh, embarrassing. Um, the thing that was most scary was I started to develop an obsession about it. I started to think about it during the day. I knew how much alcohol was. Uh, my parents didn't drink. They had alcohol in the cabinet right above the uh, fridge. And I'd start to think about that bottle of Smirnoff. Because what I'd do is I'd, I'd pour it when I get home from school, and I'd, I didn't know what a screwdriver was, but I'd pour orange juice in it and I'd drink it. And then as it started going lower, I started to put water in there. Nobody taught me that. And then I started to get scared because it started to just taste like water. And I thought, what if my parents find out? And then what am I going to do? You know, there were other alcohols in there. But so uh, a mental obsession started childhood and then, and then also another thing started by uh, high school a physical craving that when I'd have a drink and we'd go out because by then a few friends had cars we'd go to bars in Long Island called the Buckboard or Back Barn or whatever and 
you know, we drink these Alabama Slammers, which to me it was like high C, but it had a, bigger, a, a better kick. And I remember that I couldn't stop drinking them. I had to keep going. Uh, and I didn't understand what that was about. Uh, by, by 17, I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew that I, uh, I couldn't drink. Uh, so I stopped drinking. Actually, 17, 18, I stopped drinking. Uh, I went away to college, and I, uh, I learned another phrase in AA that was called white knuckling, because I didn't know what that meant, but that was what my freshman year of, of college was, which was just going to class uh, and, and like being like this, not being around people, afraid to, to go out, because I was terrified. Um, and I got through, I got a 4-0 that, that semester, and I was just like nothing but a bundle of nerves. I went back to uh, my, uh, my home, and a friend of mine, I was feeling sick, and a friend said, try this, and he gave me a snifter of something. Brandy, cognac, I was like, oh, I'm sick, I'm gonna just have it. And then that winter break, I was drinking all, all the time, constantly. And then I went back to, to college, and what made sense at that time was to join a fraternity. So that semester I joined a fraternity. They had a bar that was open 24-7 downstairs. That was my college career. Basically, I would start to do very, very uh, uh, disturbing things, embarrassing things. Um, I'd try to stop drinking for a period of a couple of weeks during the summer, and then I couldn't, and, and back and forth. Um, I ended up failing uh, my senior year, like a course to get out of that school. And, uh, you know, again, these are all high maintenance problems. I got sober very young, but I was, I was, I was embarrassed. I was mortified in front of my father, in front of my parents. And uh, again, I said, I'm not going to drink. I'm going to stop. And I did for a couple of months. And I went to school in the, the summer, and then I finally got my degree, and then I started drinking again. And what made sense to me was to work in a theater down uh, on 10th Street and 1st Avenue. It was a theater for the new city, which was in an old, like, uh, poultry thing. And I ended up living in a cage there. I ended up starting to drink. And so the morning was, I would, uh, the production manager would give me a tall buy a beer, uh, a joint, whatever. That wasn't, uh, drugs weren't really a big part of my story, but he'd give me a, uh, you know, a big drink and that, and he'd start me working you know, and I was basically labor uh, seven days a week. Uh, and it was just drinking, you know, trying to meet women, and, uh, and that was it. Uh, what made perfect sense to me was instead of getting paid $70 a week at this theater doing this stuff, what I really needed to do was work in a bar. And I thank God I got that bartending job. I was about 22, 23. So, I got the gig, it was first three days and four days, then six days a week, and I drink the whole shift. I don't know if people can do that today in bars anymore, I think they're pretty well regulated, but I worked on a bar uh, called Fred's on 95th between 1st and 2nd, and basically my shift would be at 8 o'clock uh, till 4, um, and uh, so what would happen is, uh, actually, I like to start it out in the morning, which is, uh, it's, it's weird because I would drink until, like, you guys would stay with me till 4, and then if we were having a good night, I would pull the grating down, and then we'd stay there till 6.37 in the morning. 
I'd go to sleep, I'd wake up at 11.50 a.m., I'd walk around the corner to Blimpies and get a tuna hero and a bag of Doritos, I'd walk back to the bar at noon, and Claudia, I'd help her open the grates, and I'd have to sit there for 10, 15 minutes while she was like counting the, the you know, checking the points and the bottles and everything, and I was going nuts. About 12.15, she hands me a cold, frosty mug. I drink all day, play with the shuffle bowling and all that other stuff. Go back to my apartment after grabbing a slice, go to sleep 6.30 to 7.45, get to the bar at 7.56. It was 25 steps away from where my apartment was. And then for that hour, between 8 and 9, I was in twilight, where I was still drunk from the daytime, but still sober. The owner was there. I wasn't allowed to drink. All of you that had spent your paychecks the whole day were, were cranky for buybacks, if anyone remembers what that is. And I was, it was, 8 to 9 was a miserable hour. Fred would leave, Claudia would leave, the dayside folks would leave, and 9 o'clock I'd get to drink with you. And I'd drink with you. And I'd drink. If, if this person was having a vodka tonic, I'd have a glass in front. If this person was having a beer, I'd have that same thing. I would have bottles and drinks all around the bar. I drank all the time. A huge capacity to drink. I started to develop pains in my body. I started to bleed in places. I started to do like kind of psychotic things where I would find myself just storming up Second Avenue as traffic was coming down, screaming at cars. Uh, none of that stopped me. What stopped me was one simple thing in August of 1989, which is I got a call one morning where one woman's uh, morning, 11, 11.30, says, I had a great time with you last night. We should do it again. And I had no idea who she was or what she was talking about. That's what got me into AI. Just the fear of losing my mind. I'd never had a blackout before. And if there's one thing I always cared about was my memory. And I was losing it. I came in. I stepped into the meetings. I was terrified. It was in a church. I was afraid of churches. I was afraid of other religions. Um, for all the reasons I mentioned at the start. Uh, and a few men took me uh, to a diner afterwards. And they sat me down and we started to talk. Uh, and I was, I was like freaking out, like I've ended my life, my life's over, everybody in the room is, is old, and what have I done, and what have I done, and they were laughing, and, and one guy like uh, took a cup, a coffee cup, he was like, cup, cup, he starts tapping, I was like, what's wrong with this guy, and I keep rattling on about how my life's over, and then another guy takes his keys and says, keys, keys, and they're all laughing, and I was like, what is, these, these people are crazy, but then, you know, one of them just said, how about we just keep it in the now? And then she said, he said to the waiter, hey, can you get him one of that lemon coconut cake? It was like the Metro Diner or something like that. And it was delicious, by the way. <laughs> lemon coconut cake. And that's where it started. And they said, hey, we're going to another meeting. You want to come with us? I said, sure. I got nothing else planned. And that's how my life in AA started. Uh, I tried to go back to the bar. I immediately knew I had to quit. I went in for a shift. And 15 minutes into the shift, I pulled down the grates. The people, you who were still out there drinking, were screaming at me. But I left the neighborhood. I went to move into my cousin's uh, apartment. And uh, that saved my life. I went to meetings five days, uh, five meetings a day, 
my, my cousin had a little infant, so I was taking care of the infant all day, like five, six-month-old baby. I was playing with the baby and going to AA meetings. Back then, we had meeting books that we'd write numbers on, and I was calling them from pay phones because we didn't have cell phones. And that's it. And that's how AA started for me. Uh, I fell in with uh, some really strong uh, folks with strong sobriety, um, people like uh, Chris M., uh, my first job, my sobriety job, a guy named John helped me get that job. He's an old name in, in, um, in these rooms. Some people might have been sponsored by him years ago. He got me this job. You know, well, he got me an interview. I got taken care of um, by men. The women did too, but you know, I was also told don't date in that first year. And it was really good advice. I had to keep the focus on the program and, and, and working it. Um, pretty quickly, I was told I had to do service. Uh, so that was making coffee or greeting or, or do, doing anything, the literature table, etc. Um, and then the other thing that I did was uh, I began to sit down and, uh, and read the steps, uh, or sorry, work, uh, read the big book and start working the steps with my sponsor at the time. Um, who was a, a, a sponsor, sorry, a sponsee of, uh, of Bill, um, I began, began to realize that even though I wasn't drinking, I still had problems with anxiety. Uh, I still had problems with uh, character defects um, of anger, uh, of pride, of envy, that these things are endemic in me. And spoiler alert, they're still there. They didn't go away. I didn't become a saint. And somebody explained, well, of course, you know, you're, you're, you're still, you're a sober horse thief. They used to say you're, you were drunk. Now you're not, but it, it's the same person. So I started to think about AA as uh, a way for me to try to find a, a, a way to, to deal with these things, to find uh, homeostasis or, or balance or, or, or serenity. And that it was explained to me the only way that I could do that, that I was powerless over it. In the same way that I was powerless over my compulsion to drink, I was powerless over these character defects. I was going to keep giving in to them unless I partnered with my higher power to address them. And that's on a daily basis. So this was going on for 12, 13 years. I first worked with Chris, then I moved to Kevin as my sponsor. Then I got married. Then I had some kids. And then I started a business. And the business had offices around the country, and I was flying around the country. And there wasn't a specific day or week that I could remember where I stopped going to meetings. But I stopped going to meetings. It happened after September 11th. Not too long after September 11th, I stopped going to meetings. There's a miracle in this, which is I didn't drink. But I was a dry drunk. For a period of about seven years, I was a terrible husband. I was controlling. I was controlling to my kids uh, and stern with them. Um, I was the worst boss you ever had. You know, I was just a jerk. I was not a good friend. All of the above. My health was not great, too. I'd gained like 60 pounds, and, and all, but that's all just externals. The internal thing was I was miserable. I gave in to all these defects. I gave in to all the anxiety. Uh, I don't know why I didn't drink. Because I, I, I 
there was only one step left, which was to go out. But so 2008, nine, you know, a big global company was looking to buy my company, and because the markets crashed, they pulled out. Concurrently, a friend of mine called and said that she was having an anniversary. She'd love to be one of uh, me to be one of her speakers. It was out in Brooklyn. I was like, oh, I haven't been going to meetings. That's all right. Just go. And I went and I spoke. And I felt a little bit like a, a, a faker. It's like, I'm not. Who am I to talk in an AA meeting? I haven't been in a meeting in seven years. But you know what? I shared, and all of a sudden it came back, and everybody gave me this like love. I was like, and people shared. I was like, where have I been? What have I missed? Just because this one call, this one woman called me up and said, hey, I want you to, to do this. That's what took me to, and I, I, I woke up, and I, and I recommitted back to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I go to a meeting a day. I worked with a, spa, a sponsor named uh, Paul for uh, all that time, Paul O, and he just died, he was passing away last year. And a dear friend of mine, this, this cat over here, Roger, had said, you gotta go get another sponsor before he passes. And I didn't want to, I wanted Paul to live forever, but I went back to Kevin, and I said, Ke Kevin, can we do this? And he said, yes, let's do this again. But it's not just going to the meetings. I work with, uh, with people, not just sponsees. I call other people. I check in with them. Um, my deal with spons sponsees is if I'm, I'm going to sponsor you, if you sponsor other people, if you've got a year. I'm not going to do it. That, that is my payment. And if you're a newcomer, you've got to call three uh, other newcomers uh, a day. You've got to get to a meeting. You've know, you got you to do the work. This is a program ab about giving it away. That's it. So, you know where things are today. I'm doing um, some great service. Um, you know, in service you get to start to fall in love with the people around you too. Like sometimes you get complicated stuff too. My fast break, uh, I'm, I'm doing service over there. And you know, I think the steering committee here also has its um, agita as well. I think that when we get to the, the central nervous system of AA uh, and, and we really start to live the traditions, we start to learn just how sober we as individuals are. You know, I want to control the, everything. You know, one fellow, I was in a morning Zoom meeting this morning and the chair was uh, cross-talking or feedback everything and I wanted to just tell him you can't. I did sort of tell him you can't. That didn't go over well. Sometimes just turning it over and let somebody else do that but the service, like doing, like doing sponsorship coordinator on Friday nights is fun. I got, I'm getting to meet some folks that go to that meeting regularly. Uh, I also do service at a meeting called Central Park West Tuesday evenings, and that's been a joy. I've been going to that meeting for 30 some odd years. So, um, um, I don't have much more to say other than to say that, that for folks with long-term sobriety that, that know it, you know, one of my sponsors went out that nobody ever expected. He had 23, 24 years of sobriety, and he went out for a period of 10, 12 years, and his story is gruesome in that period. But none of us is immune to this disease. It's a progressive disease. And, you know, it's fatal or worse. I had a sponsee uh, during COVID who, who died. He went out, and he, and he died not of, not of COVID. He died of, uh, you know whatever, he just, he was actually an OD because he was a drinker and he overdosed. But I had another sponsee uh, who, uh, 
he had the worst. He didn't die. He had a, a massive stroke. And now his wife takes care of him. And he had about 12 years. So these things, people don't get struck drunk. You know, there's a whole chain of things from skipping meetings to saying, I don't want to talk to my sponsor today to whatever. We make these little deals and, and they don't ever end well. Um, and I could tell you as somebody who's like sort of born again AA, the best decision I made, uh, because I, I saved that marriage, my wife and I are doing fabulous and we, I love her and she actually loves me and kicked me out. My kids love me. I don't have the, the teens that, are, that want to kick me out. My oldest one's a little cranky because she lived through some of that nonsense in the 2000s, but I'm trying to repair that. But the younger ones, we're good. We're okay. So this helps us, you know. So I think I've said enough. Thank you all.